0: Welcome to another episode of Stories from the Atlantic, I'm your host Svavar Jonantansson. I found myself standing by a small burning fire on the outskirts of the third most northern city in the world at the end of September in 2012. The fire burning up discarded wood was to celebrate the five-year anniversary of the local kindergarten close to the top of the world. In this episode of Stories from the atlantic we've left the geographical limit or concept of the show for good reason and traveled north, out of the North Atlantic Ocean, or the atlantic as we call it. My journey north was part of an expedition for Earth Vision Institute to document the record low sea ice in the Arctic, which I also used as part of a radio series I did for Icelandic Public Radio in Icelandic. Now, six years later, I'm sharing the experience with you all in the more understandable English language. The city I found myself in was Longyearbyen, in the Svalbard archipelago at the edge of the Arctic Ocean, situated at 79 degrees north. The air was cold and crisp, with a cloudy sky over Isfjorden, or Icefjord, reaching to and past the city. Arriving in Longyearbyen by plane from Tromsø in Norway had given me goosebumps, partly due to a perception of isolation and a childlike idea of being on top of the globe with 99999999999 percent of the world's population being far below to the south. Longyearbyen is the third most northern city in the world with around 2,000 inhabitants, while the two most northern cities have 50 inhabitants combined. Longyearbyen's history can be traced back to coal mining, which though, dating back to the 17th century, became an industry in the 19th and early 20th century. The city got its name from the American industrialist John Munro Longyear, who, along with his associate, Fredrik Eyer, founded the Arctic Coal Company. The coal mining, run by American, British, Swedish, Norwegian, Dutch and Russian companies, was at its peak between 1900 and 1925, quickly ending with a drop in coal prices and the Svalbard Treaty, which gave Norway control of the archipelago in 1925. The remaining coal operations were run by Norway and the Soviet Union, though at a far smaller scale. There is also a long history of hunting in the Svalbard archipelago dating back to the 16th century with the arrival of the Pomor people from the White Sea area of northwestern Russia. The Pomors mainly hunted walrus for their tusks, hide and blubber, along with fox, reindeer and seal, using some parts for handcraft, some for food, and others for trading. Among the most sought-after animal was the polar bear, in winter fur, but the large animal is still the area's most famous inhabitant, now protected, and warned about with signs and warnings all over town. I guarantee you that few grocery stores in the world have gun lockers for rifles, but in the case of Longyearbyen, people often carry rifles while out walking, but only if in direct danger, are you allowed to shoot a polar bear? As the Pomors, part of the Russian Empire, drew back on their activity in the Svalbard in the 1850s, the Norwegians intensified theirs. Since then, the name Svalbard has moved from hunting and coal to science and tourism, as well as having a unique status, a neutral place in the world. Along with the renowned University of Svalbard, or UNIS, as a place of science, an international seed vault buried deep into a mountain on the outskirts of town, represents a cold temple of science and conservation. The entrance is a simple tall concrete shaft leading into the mountain, conjuring up images of evil villains and their underground layers, as in a James Bond movie. And this vault is actually representative of a doomsday catastrophe, as its sole purpose is to be a backup currently of 890,000 species of plants, in case of a major plant extinction. The seeds, stored at minus 18 degrees Celsius, or just under zero degrees Fahrenheit, are seen as a restart button for the world in case of any major catastrophe, natural or man-made. It was down at the water's edge, near the snowmobile dealership, that I came across a man, which to me seemed to be hunting small birds. My amazement came not from him hunting birds, but the fact that they were so small, tiny, not worth the hassle to prepare them in the first place. My assumption of course was fabulously wrong as he caught the little migratory birds in cages in the name of science, attracting them by a recording played through an old school cassette player. Our visit to Longyearbyen was short. We were a two-man team, myself and Matthew Kennedy, members of Earth Vision Institute, also known as the Extreme Ice Survey, featured in the documentary Chasing Ice. With the news of a record low sea ice, in autumn of 2012, the project's founder, James Baylock, sent us to join an expedition of the University of Svalbard, UNIS, which was headed into the sea ice in the north. Armed with video cameras, sound equipment, still cameras, tripods and warm clothing, we set out to record a mini-documentary and post updates online. With a loose script, we were playing it by ear, alternating between a formal David Attenborough style and the more experimental approach of a Werner Herzog documentary. We shot, and shot, then shot, establishing shots, presentations, explanations and b-roll material before leaving land. The day after, after meeting the students, teachers and scientists of the expedition, going over safety, schedule and equipment, we left port, heading to the most northern region of the world. At the end of September in 2012, the 60-meter-long, 872-ton RV Lanse, run by the Norwegian Polar Institute, sailed out the Isfjorden up along the coast of Svalbard at 79 degrees north, a blue ship on a dark grey sea. The area we sailed was not a new frontier, having been a hunting ground for whalers in the 16th century, especially the Dutch, British and German, who in a few decades had nearly killed off the populations. The Dutch alone were catching 750 to 1,200 whales annually, mostly bowheads. The economics of whaling was based on blubber, which was turned into oil, mainly for lighting up European cities. After the collapse of whaling, the Spitsbergen archipelago, the only inhabited part of the Svalbard archipelago, was mostly abandoned until the next industrial opportunity of coal presented itself. In between, there was the period of famous expeditions to reach the North Pole, often with Svalbard as their starting point. The earliest attempt at reaching the North Pole, situated at 90 degrees north, top of the world, with no land underfoot, were made in the early 19th century. Frithjof Nansen, on his ship Fram, made it to 86 degrees, 14 minutes, in 1895, and Luigi Amadeo made it to 86 degrees, 34 minutes north, in 1899, the furthest any human had made it, as far as we know. It was in 1909 that two competing and still controversial claims were made to have actually reached the North Pole. Frederick Albert Cook claimed to have reached the North Pole on April 21, 1908, but with unreliable proof of location. U.S. Navy engineer Robert Peary claimed to have, among with his associate Matthew Henson and four Inuits, reached the North Pole on April 6, 1909, but the trip's progress seems unlikely and conflicted with the accounts of Henson, who told of arduous detours on the journey. North Pole or not, it was clear that the honor was not to be shared, as Hansen, a black man, went unrecognized for decades while Peary took all the credit. After decades of only airplanes and submarines reaching the Pole, the American Ralph Pleisted and three companions reached the Pole by snowmobiles in 1968, and, a year later, the first expedition on foot reached the Pole, led by the British Wally Herbert. In the decades that followed, The far north played a role in the Cold War as the ultimate unmanned battlefront, as the possible route of a nuclear missile. The Americans and Canadians jointly set up the DEW line, or distant early warning line, to monitor the Arctic airspace. This meant radar stations scattered across desolate and remote parts of the Canadian Arctic, and a growing apprehension about Russia's possible expansionist ideas as it quickly became the second largest nuclear superpower. So, this part of the globe is no longer uncharted or unknown territory, having most recently opened up to international shipping and tourism. The sailing of a Russian ship carrying liquefied gas through the Northwest Passage without an accompanying icebreaker in 2017 marked a major change in shipping. The effects might mean a revolution for maritime activity and global business with much quicker and cheaper transport routes. On board RV-Lance, we represented neither Cold War participation nor the new frontier of shipping or polar bear tourism, but rather the collection of data relating to what is happening in the Arctic. The science done on board was part of the university students' education, but also an important part of ongoing research of the Arctic Ocean. Before we reached the sea ice, equipment of various sorts was dropped into the sea, fishing for data, of various sorts by the students. It was during the middle of the night that a large piece of equipment was to be dropped into the ocean with only a few people on deck to carry out the task. This I imagined could be a good scenario for a Cold War novel by Graham Greene. Who knows what's being dropped to the bottom of the Fram Strait at 2am in the morning. Ana Cecilia Peralta-Feriz from the University of Washington, a native of Mexico, and the plot thickens Mr. Green. The reality of this equipment dropped involved the research of Cecilia Peralta-Feriz, a physical oceanographer who in 2012 was deploying pressure sensors to monitor ocean bottom pressure. The equipment was expensive, for sure, and the rare opportunity to get it into the right place, meaning somewhere around 79 degrees north, was part of the pressure on deck that night. With the use of a small crane, the device was lifted up and over the side of the gently rolling ship with care and precision. As it was lowered into the water, its outlines became distorted and soon the space-like device softly fell into the deep darkness of the Fram Strait with the Mexican flag on its base seeming to flutter through the optical illusion of the moving water. Her late-night equipment drop was not her first, but perhaps the most stressful, as she now was solely responsible. Inside the ship, standing over computer equipment, a small group, including the leader of the expedition, Dr. Frank Nielsen listened for the signal from below. It's about
1: 2,400 and 44 meters it's sitting at the bottom already and it's perfectly vertical and we are happy it's going to chirp in about one minute can you hear that? 45
2: seconds, it's going
1: to That's more James Bond song, Mario. You can hear that it's actually the instrument. Because it's a very distinct. Uh, but, Is that what you.
3: But, yeah, but when you. It's like, let's, I'm let's, here! She Spanish,
2: English, and a transducer. <laughs> All the little Dad? I me, mean, I'm okay. It says.
0: Though faint, it was there a low, high-pitched sound reminiscent of a dial-up modem from the 90s. Perhaps not the Apollo 11 mission, but the signal received was a big step for mission control and Cecilia's ongoing research. A few days later, I asked her to clarify what had been done during that night off the west coast of Svalbard.
1: So what we did the other night was to deploy a pressure sensor. Uh, This pressure sensor is uh, anchored and going to be sitting at the bottom of the ocean for hopefully three years, three to five years, um, no, three years only. And It measures pressure and temperature of the bottom of the ocean uh, every 15 minutes and what we can infer from those measurements of pressure is the weight of the ocean above the instrument. And what that can tell us is how much the sea level is changing or how much the amount of salt in the water column is uh, changing over time. And it also gives a very precise measurement of the tides.
0: Ana Cecilia Peraltaferis came upon the field of oceanography external forces, when a strike in her University of Mexico City forced her to study at another school in Baja, Mexico. Fascinated by the ocean since childhood, her interest moved from the biology to the physics of the ocean, and in her case, the Arctic Ocean. She earned her PhD from the University of Washington in 2012, supervised by Dr. Jamie Morrison, and is now a Fulbright Scholar, living and working in Tromsø in Norway. In 2008, and later in 2010, she reached a symbolic destination when she participated in the North Pole Environmental Observatory Expedition.
1: Or in that time, very close to the North Pole because it was going towards this Russian drifting campsite. And uh, just the sensation of being, walking on the ocean was weird and really, amazing they can video about something unreal (laughs) i guess um and yet be moving around because i could tell of course with a gps that we were not stationary we're standing there and yet we are moving and there's tides underneath me and there's waves and currents and yeah there's just so much going on there and yet it can be so peaceful It, it was just unreal and amazing. (laughs) With the shock of the cold air in my face, I was, whoa, (laughs) what am I doing here? (laughs) But uh, at the end, this is amazing, and I would just do it over and over.
0: Part of that North Pole expedition was dropping pressure sensor equipment to the bottom of the ocean, which could have put Mexico further north than ever before.
1: And I wish I had put a Mexican flag, because it would have gone straight down to the North Pole. Uh, There's Of course, there was this uh, big fuss about the Russians uh, planting a flag at the bottom of the North Pole, uh, which, by the way, my instrument is closer than their (laughs) their flag, (laughs) and makes me very proud. But uh, there's no Mexican flag there, there's only a University of Washington instrument, which I'm also very proud of. Once you go on the field and you get what you need to do your processing and your discoveries, the fact that you can discover something and then leads to many more questions, I, I think that's where the satisfaction of being a scientist goes. Because it never ends. You discover something, but there's actually something that you could do beyond. And then it, it just continues and continues. There's always something to, to find out or to discover.
0: We did discuss the financial side of science. Neither of us much aware of the actual costs involved.
1: See, I haven't gotten up to the part of writing my own proposals and getting my own funding, so I don't know just yet. But I'm pretty sure that pretty soon I will be shocked with, what, I have to ask for this much for just that part? (laughs) It would be crazy, but definitely exciting.
0: (laughs) There are, end of the world, doomsday movies, made about every risk situation known to man, from deadly viruses to the takeover of artificial intelligence. One of those, focusing on man's effect on nature, was the day after tomorrow, where man-made global warming had melted so much glacier ice that the cold, fresh water entering the oceans literally breaks the ocean currents, stopping the flow of warm water around the world, leading to a sudden ice age. Without spoiling a good movie night, I asked Cecilia of her thoughts on the premise of the day after tomorrow.
1: So that does happen, but... um... There's a longer time scale to that, so this cannot shut down a global circulation within days. It has to ha- des- decades have to happen uh, for this to happen, even longer, hundreds of years.
0: Whatever the changes might be of the steep rise in temperature, both in air and water, is yet to be seen. Whether the strength of storms, hurricanes, and the unusual weather events, some manifesting recently, is due to the warming, is still being researched in a very large and complicated equation of factors. One of those factors is the anomalies of the ocean currents in the Arctic and the influence of various factors like wind and other currents, research which is partly carried out by Ana Cecilia Peralta Feris. The data comes from her pressure sensors, sitting at the bottom of the ocean, chirping out data sets, and then a set of satellite lovers in a constant journey across the sky. Cecilia's data is actually used or strengthened by the data from the GRACE satellites. These two satellites follow each other, in orbit, constantly, measuring the distance to the Earth's surface as they go. When the first one comes over higher elevation of Earth, like mountains, it slows down, as does the second one, shortly after, never catching each other, but speeds up if there's a drop in elevation, as in a deep valley or the ocean floor. So they strive to reach an equilibrium of distance, never touching, but at some moments they get symbolically closer. Something made me think of a pair of birds courting each other in the sky, a kind of mythology of love and science, which in this case I'd call for the love of grace. Her machine, sitting alone at the bottom of the ocean, spoke to Cecilia during one and a half year with messages of ocean pressure until it went quiet in 2014. An attempt to retrieve it that year proved unsuccessful. We sailed northwest, losing the sight of the western coast of Svalbard in search of sea ice, which in the early autumn of 2012 was at a record all-time minimum, meaning covering a smaller area than ever before since measurements started. The world's media had set its sights north, a world usually out of sight and out of mind for the most part, but now appeared on TV screens around the world, with heavily-dressed reporters sitting in Zodiac boats or on the deck of an icebreaker. These reporters asked a variety of questions from the five V's, who, what, when, where, why, often with a focus on the political and economic effects. It felt as we were sailing away from the world's attention, with no news reporters on board, though me and Matt actually had the same purpose, to share information with the world via online blog updates. On the morning of September 30th, at 6 a.m., before the sun had risen, we stood on deck and peered our eyes to the horizon, where suddenly a thin white line appeared in the distance. The scene seemed to be in black and white, a gray and grainy view, until the sun rose, making the Arctic sea ice appear clearly. Here was the white blanket at the top of the globe, seen by countless children in classrooms throughout the 20th century. This was the fantasy of Santa Claus and the reality of a changing Arctic with its yearly decline in sea ice, a trend since the 70s confirmed by satellite data and now by us. Before long we had reached the edge which was actually a thin layer of ice surrounding the interior of multi-year ice. We sailed through a mix of open water and thin layers of ice some more like a slick of oil on the surface with a sound you'd imagine if sailing in an ocean of frozen slush, salt flavored in this case. Then suddenly the thicker multi-year ice appeared and the search narrowed in on an ice flow that was strong and therefore safe enough for team and equipment to work on for the coming days. As we sailed deeper into the ice, either ramming ice flows to move forward or to test its strength so that we could set up workstations on it, my thoughts were mainly of the issue of safety. We kept looking for a strong enough ice flow that would not break up even as the ship rammed it head-on. I asked Björnar Pedersen, a long-time sailor, if he had any fear the first time he walked out on the sea ice. Do I know,
4: you not afraid for the first no, time? No, no, no. I've uh, for on the But now we're full. We've got to catch up. But three the.
0: The answer was a firm no dating back to his days of seal hunting in the early eighties off the coast of Newfoundland when they caught approximately seven thousand seals, as if sensing my own hint of fear. He told me that during the seal hunt they did not have the safe suits that we now wore with flotation and insulation
4: my. No, no. I, I <laughs>
0: In those days, they would simply jump between ice floes with nothing but a stick with a hook to pull yourself up onto the ice were you to fall into the sea. The hooked stick did not serve the dual purpose of weapon and rescue tool, as the seals were mostly shot by someone on board the boat. Older methods to hunt seals included clubbing them over the head, thereby protecting the valuable fur, and among the native tribes of the east coast of Canada, seal traps limited the risk and time needed to catch the migrating animals. The combined methods of hunting off ships and by use of traps in the area around Newfoundland led to an explosion from 5,000 skins in 1793 to 81,000 skins in 1803. The method of clubbing seals was also part of a growing opposition the world over, leading to a sharp drop in the fur trade, though the collapse in the seal population played an equally important role. But when I spoke to Björnar on the deck of RV Lance in 2012, surrounded by sea ice, the catch was no longer seal, though the ship itself was originally built for the seal hunt. Now the target, the catch, the hunt, was for scientific data of various sorts. I asked him about his perception of how the sea ice has been changing up in the Arctic Ocean in the last years. Du kan
4: säga 1998 var här bort där, och då sko v inte till långår, och ha kummuligheter på, och det var i, ja, det var i mars måne. Hela fjorden var jämför oss som kuckis, och vi hade inte komma så in. He said that in
0: 1998 the ice was so thick that they had not been able to sail into the fjord by Longyearbyen, while in the last five years or so there has been almost no ice to speak of. He and those that have sailed these seas for the last decades see the trend clearly from more to less ice having to go further north every year to get into thick ice. Among the changes, clearly visible in the disappearance of polar bears from an island called Bjørnæjar, or Bear Islands, directly related to the retreat of the sea ice. His final note, in the form of a question, reminded me of the purpose of the trip. it's global
4: det
0: He couldn't say, one way or the other, if these changes are a result of man-made global warming or whether we are looking at a temperature swing by other forces, though he pointed out that the science being done on board could perhaps help to explain these changes. Among the scientists explaining the large-scale global climate trends is Cecilia Bitz, a professor at the Atmospheric Science Department at the University of Washington, who stood out on deck watching the ice all around. For her, this was a special moment, seeing the sea ice with her own two eyes for the first time, after years of satellite data appearing on a computer screen.
5: Well, I study sea ice with models that are global climate models, and they have a sea ice component in atmosphere and ocean. And we've been, for a few decades now, I think doing uh, a reasonable, realistic job of trying to represent all these components of the system and we've been predicting the sea ice would disappear sometime in summer uh, at mid-century, so 2050, or maybe earlier now uh, because we've really become, it's become very clear that the system in observations is just uh, disappearing, well the sea ice system is, is disappearing very rapidly, it's very sensitive to Uh, Anthropogenic, man-made effects like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere.
0: These predictions of the Arctic sea ice disappearing in summer in the next 20 to 30 years are based on models that have been modified as new data is available. Cecilia Bitts outlined the simplicity of the changes in black and white terms
5: very reflective, and when it disappears and you, in turn, replace it with ocean, which is very absorbing, that contrast makes uh, the system respond very rapidly. So we're losing that insulating ice cover over the whole Arctic, though, uh, in summer. And then it's coming back only for, uh, you know, this, this winter season, and so it can't get as thick as it used to.
0: The term Arctic amplification is just that, the loss of reflective ice and the heat gain of sun falling on open dark seas. The sea ice, which can often become four meter or 13 feet thick over large areas, is losing that thickness and has been for years, as the data shows. The simple fact that thick sea ice reflects up to 80% of the sun's rays and that the open ocean absorbs up to 90% makes it clear that the warming of the Arctic has a strong relationship with loss of sea ice. In light of her work being based on studying climate models on a digital form, analyzing data from systems with cryptic acronyms, I asked her if it was important for her to be there to see this as a scientist.
5: I don't know if it's critical to to see everything. I mean, we obviously can't see a black hole or a supernova firsthand, and I think we still can gain knowledge about those by uh, uh, looking at the basic physics and making models, but why would you choose to um, not take the opportunity if you can, you know? So, I I think it can only make us better scientists to actually observe.
0: On October 1st, 2012, we'd found an ice flow strong enough for science. There's only like five,
5: course. It's only, ah, okay. Maybe like a huge pieces.
1: About,
3: well, <laughs> twelve, miles,
0: maybe. <laughs> uh, I yeah. the, the, the ship lay moored to the side of the ice by thick ropes and the gangway was lowered. Before long, the crew, scientists, students and teachers were busy at work, drilling holes and setting up equipment On the elusive temporary island device. (laughs) (laughs) At hand was a busy time, but with a hard to describe calm. The sea ice felt like a buffer, both from the wind and the sea, that was flowing, rising, and falling beneath us without us even noticing. It was calm and cold, at one point forming an ice fog that made stinging needles from the moisture in the air. It was all new perceptions, far from the fluctuating turbulence of the North Atlantic, where low pressure systems rule over the calm of a high pressure. Here at 81 degrees north, it felt stable, a term at odds with the reality of the Arctic. Out on the ice floe, expedition leader Dr. Frank Nielsen was assisting with a drill that would not run as it should, faced with some of the oldest and therefore thickest ice in the Arctic Ocean. Does this emphasize how dependent you are on equipment and machinery?
2: No, it just emphasizes how lazy we are. <laughs> so we are used to we are used to fjord ice. Thirty meter, thirty centimeters to one and a half meter. Yeah,
5: these drills are not cut I don't out from this. No.
0: Now you're going to use the bigger drill. Yeah. We need
2: that size to get the instruments through. The instruments being what? The instrument is uh, CTD, measuring um, salinity and temperature. And we, we use that, that's our background field for all the other measurements we do. We need that uh, to look at the stratification, the layering below the sea ice. And uh, do we have, the question is do we have heat coming up to the ice or where is the heat source?
0: In a calm moment on board I asked Dr. Frank Nielsen what the science being done on the trip meant and what it did in terms of understanding the Arctic's present changes.
2: It's like a snapshot of uh, all the important process that um, controls uh, sea ice, uh, how sea ice grow and how sea ice melt. So, there's not many opportunities we have like this to, to, to measure in both air, sea ice and ocean. So what will come out of these data might be for instance uh, to explain how heat is going from the ocean into the ice, which is one of the major um, or one of the processes which are not uh, fully known and not very well parameterized in uh, say climate models. So uh, that's why I think these kind of measurements are important uh, and um, uh, it's important to do them over a larger region, but you you see how hard it is to get access to the Arctic Ocean with uh, ship ship time and so. So this is the best we can do, I think, at least for from our side.
3: Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, we, if we could lose it, it would mean that we're broke.
0: One of the points he mentioned was the experience gained by the students, which learned to work and behave during field work in the Arctic, a remote and expensive place, ultimately leading to data that is used by others. The use by others could include scientists working in the same field, but also people that might have a different view on the data. Life on board the boat had a rhythm, mainly based around food, which was plenty and then individual rhythms. Each person had a responsibility regarding their data gathering or other job, defining how they spent a lot of their time. On the ice, each project, each set of data collection, had its own rhythm. Some included heavy-duty drilling. Akin to an Arctic oil exploration, while others meant the student had to lie on the ice by the side of a hole in the ice, measuring, paying quiet attention, as in the case of Ingrid Hussoy Ornaheim. I asked if this had been her idea of science when she began her studies.
3: Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. Or I like to be on the ice and do measurements and drilling in the ice.
0: So this is fun for you?
3: Yeah. <laughs> or when, when it's as slow as this, it's not that fun. But when it goes faster, it's fun i think it's fun
0: safety was a shared responsibility but when it came to the danger of polar bears rotating crews of armed guards students in this case made sure the alarm was rung if needed from the first day in the ice we'd seen polar bears either in the distance or as in the case of one afternoon making his way closer than deemed safe for the crew andrea girish was the one to spot it.
1: When I was up on deck uh, in the uh, around noon, I saw a polar bear just far away. And now it came further and further, uh, but we are not in trouble because it's still f- away enough. But Tuva on deck, she will have an eye on it and watch if it will
3: proceed against us, and then we take action if it comes further.
0: In charge of safety, whether polar bear or otherwise, was Monica Votvik.
3: We've been watching him all day, and he was quite far distance away from uh, from us earlier today. But then suddenly it starts to move towards us, and I guess he smelled us or something. I don't know.
0: Do you think it's the smell of food for him, or curiosity?
3: I think it's more curiosity. That he saw something in the ice that was not supposed to be there, and he had to check out what it was. He was a healthy fat polar bear, so I don't think it was too hungry.
0: This is like a vast kingdom of ice and he must be the king.
3: Oh, yes, definitely. We are at his area. We are intruders in his area. This is his place. So that's why we want to treat him with respect. Don't scare him unnecessary and just leave him alone. It's it's so beautiful to see this uh, this big animal, wild, animal in its own environment. Wild and free and healthy, good-looking. It's, it's uh, almost religious to seem like that.
4: Next next yeah.
0: Having lost interest, the polar bear walked away into the expansive whiteness, a camouflage king of a dwindling empire, just to allow myself some poetics. But the place does feel like another world, not that far from the adventures of early explorers and the unknown before that, a place of mystical tales, monsters, and lost human races. Now, a desolate hunting ground of polar bears, single ships of science, nuclear-powered icebreakers and prowling submarines, remnants from the Cold War superpowers, uncertain of how to keep playing, the game that never fully ends, with the dreadful scenario of nuclear war, missiles shooting across the Arctic Ocean as an unacceptable end to the game. Let's end this journey away from the extremes and search for a floating abandoned base representing collaboration instead of opposition. During one daily briefing, we were told of a request to locate the Barneo Ice Flow, also known as the North Pole Camp, in hopes of retrieving some valuable science equipment. The captain and crew kept a steady watch out for the piece of ice that had likely broken into pieces on its way from the North Pole. Barneo has been run by Russians catering to the tourist business with flights to the actual North Pole a short distance as the camp drifts continuously. The season is short, only about two weeks in April, before the warming up melts and breaks up the frozen camp. This was not the hunt for red October, though the embers of the Cold War do still burn in the Arctic. When we finally found the broken-up camp, it was a strange, eerie and sad sight, with empty oil barrels floating in the water, the only sign of anything man-made. Though the Arctic is a far and remote place, seemingly outside the heavy influence of humans, it has and will suffer the damages humans always bring. Both. The Russians, and to a lesser extent, the U.S. Army, have admitted discarding out of commission nuclear reactors from submarines and icebreakers in Arctic waters. With the opening of the Arctic Ocean in summer, cruise ships, freight ships, and oil tankers pose a serious risk to the environment should accidents occur. The expedition at its end, I asked some of the students of UNIS, Svalbard's University Center, of a word they thought described the Arctic sea ice we had just left. Rough, rough. <laughs> beautiful as well, beautiful, what?
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Inspiring. Relaxing. the word. Inspiring, yeah. tranquil, diminishing.
3: White, <laughs> white.
1: Eh, <laughs> uh, eh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Speechless.
3: Ginormous.
0: <laughs>
4: Doom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Transcendental.
3: I <laughs> Just amazing. <laughs> XXX
4: Ur. Thick.
3: <laughs>
4: Thin. <laughs> have
2: we have said flat already?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they also said white. Can say oh, s-
2: nobody said white, no white. You? Yeah, someone, said, someone white. said white. You can
0: say blue. Nobody said white. Blue.
2: Yeah, I white. You okay. said white? What about science? I have
0: to pass. <laughs> <Cold>. <laughs> Turbulent. <laughs> Fresh. Ridging. Water. Permeability. <laughs> <Resting.
3: laughs> Warm. Uh, what's the topic? <laughs> <laughs> sea ice.
4: Why don't we let
0: Fab tell the story? And so I end the story of a blue ship sailing the Arctic Ocean in 2012, sailing away from the sea ice after a search for data, clues and abandoned ice flows in a region known as Mare Kronium, by scholars, centuries before anyone had ever been there. Just before we fade out by the sound of a search and rescue helicopter doing a routine practice around the ship as we neared Longyearbyen, I want to tell you of a slideshow with photographs from the trip viewable on our website storiesfromtheinatlantic.com also we'll have links to the university center in svalbard the work of dr cecilia bits and dr cecilia perez and dr frank nielsen for those with further interest in the arctic